Hello, welcome to this, the sixth installment in the TTM Academy podcast series brought to you by experts in post-arrest care at the University of Pennsylvania. The Targeted Temperature Management or TTM Academy program is a initiative to educate clinicians in the provision of excellent post-arrest care and to increase survival from cardiac arrest. You're welcome to check out our other programs, including an online CME on-demand modular course on targeted temperature management post-arrest care, as well as our podcast series and future installments of our live training bootcamp programs. You can use your favorite search engine to find us by searching for TTM Academy, University of Pennsylvania, to learn more. Today, we are joined by expert in critical care and emergency medicine, Dr. John Greenwood, as well as expert in critical care resuscitation, Dr. Felipe Tehran, and we'll be discussing the potential role for ECMO in cardiac arrest. This is an exciting area of cutting-edge exploration, and we get many questions here at the TTM Academy about whether individual emergency departments should start ECMO programs, and what exactly should be the role of ECMO during cardiac arrest resuscitation and CPR. So now we'll turn it over to a discussion with Drs. Greenwood and Tehran. Dr. Greenwood, or should I say John, welcome to this TTM podcast. Hey, thanks, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, obviously, this is a topic I think a lot of people have, uh, are interested in. Um, a lot of people have probably heard about, but there's a reason why there's so much buzz around ECMO for cardiac arrest. And I think part of the reason is that our outcomes still remain poor despite decades of dedicated research. In fact, if we tried to summarize what our clinical outcomes are in 2019, well, ROSC rates are still fairly low. They're less than 40%. But that's not what we really care about, right? We want to know survival to discharge or even better, favorable neurologic outcome. So survival to discharge in the U.S. is about 7 to 10%. Now this depends on maybe where you live in the United States. Um, and favorable neurologic outcome remains abysmal at 3 to 5%. And a number of trials have failed to show outcomes benefit with even the most basic medical interventions like ACLS algorithms, for example. Of all the therapies available, we've seen modest improvements in TTM. I think probably the ones that are most exciting are rapid defibrillation, cardiocerebral resuscitation, and early reperfusion with PTI, uh, PCI. Um, Targeted temperature management definitely has uh, helped improve neurologic outcomes, but it, that doesn't get us through one major hurdle in any patient who unfortunately develops cardiac arrest, which is how do we reduce the time that there's no flow, so the patient's having no perfusion whatsoever, or maybe they're eventually getting CPR, which we would call low flow time. How do we minimize that to minimize brain and organ and other tissue ischemia prior to ROSC or reperfusion? And so if we take a step back, I think there's been a really interesting model proposed, and this was published in JAMA probably about, I don't know, maybe about 10 years ago now, um, looking at this theoretical three-phase model of cardiac arrest. And what the authors, which we'll include in the show notes, talk about is the electrical phase, of arrest, which happens basically when the patient hit the floor through the first four minutes. And essentially, this phase of cardiac arrest responds best to defibrillation. In fact, some reports of up to 50% success rate if you can defibrillate someone within four minutes of their uh, cardiac arrest. But beyond that, we start getting into the circulatory phase, or the first four to 10 minutes of arrest. 
Now this is the phase in which blood flow is really important because the heart starts developing endocardial ischemia and might be refractory to defibrillation. So it's best to start CPR as soon as possible here to, um, and this is often the most common phase when interventions are actually delivered to patients who have a cardiac arrest. Now, unfortunately, if the patient goes past this first 10 minutes, then we start thinking about the metabolic phase where tissue injury from global ischemic events and reperfusion happen. And during this phase, reperfusion may actually even harm the patient or contribute to cell death. So this is after 10 minutes. Now, certain interventions like targeted temperature management may mitigate or reduce the injury of cells for reperfusion injury, um, but all of this is practically inevitable in most cardiac arrest patients who've been down or having low flow for a prolonged period of time. But let me ask the audience, what if we could provide an intervention that would give global reperfusion a chance to start earlier, prior to prolonged attempts at CPR, and interventions that may not actually be effective, such as the debatable epinephrine for cardiac arrest, um, particularly in the field. So, Felipe, that kind of lays the landscape of why ECMO is so interesting that maybe we could provide perfusion earlier, but tell us about why this is such an interest in cardiac arrest. Well, that's a great question, John, and I think it's a great uh, segue to kind of introduce what I think it's important to um, establish clearly when we begin talking about this topic, um, and that's the the role of uh, ECMO in cardiac arrest and more broadly mechanical support in cardiac arrest. And I think um, it's, it's, as you said at the beginning, it's important to clarify that there is a, um, there is a role, at least as we understand it right now, uh, for ECMO as a bridge to something. And um, that's if you, I know that you and I are both um, sort of interested in mechanical support more broadly, um, LVATs included in other uh, strategies for mechanical support, and ECMO is one of them, right? And um, specifically in cardiac arrest, uh, the idea of ECMO is to provide bridge to definitive care. And that definitive care is at least conceptually going to depend on what is the underlying ideology. So if we could um, be in an, ide in an ideal world where we could actually figure out what the ideology for 100% of our cardiac arrest patients was, what was the trigger of cardiac arrest, we could um, bridge all patients to that specific definitive therapy and, and get them ROSC. Let me ask you gentlemen a question. Um, I think many of our audience likes to live in the real world and keep things practical. And the question really is, okay, a patient has arrived in the emergency department. They've been down for a long time. How do I decide if ECMO is right for that patient? I very much agree with you, Felipe, that definitive care is the key thing. And I think by that, we often imply coronary angiography because we think there might be an occlusion. So are we saying ECMO is possible or reasonable for everyone in prolonged arrest or specifically for patients only with refractory ventricular fibrillation? And what are the data around this? And I'll, I'll let John answer that question. But before we let John answer that question, I just want to point out that what I meant by bridging the patient to definitive care, you're absolutely right that in the current state of evidence, intervention to open coronaries in patients with an underlying MI is the current indication and, and the most popular um, and the most common uh, virtual ideology that we can treat. But at least 
Theoretically, we could use ECMO for many other underlying ideologies such as massive PEs, right? We could put patients on pump to bridge them for definitive therapy, in that case being thrombectomy or thrombolysis. Uh, we could bridge patients with, uh, with uh, tox overdoses, right, with calcium channel uh, blockers. And there's some data uh, on that as well. So just I think it's important to kind of take a step back and understand what role this therapy has. Um, this is not just about uh, PCIs and kind of patients with MI and refractory ventricular fibrillation. That just happens to be what, um, what we know uh, about the most at this moment in history, uh, but the, the future of cardiac arrest, at least as I see it, um, involves the use of therapies like ECMO um, to bridge our patients for that definitive therapy, regardless of what that underlying the, uh, ideology is. Wow, that's a really uh, broad vision, Felipe, and very exciting, and I hope that comes to fruition. I guess one of the key questions now is what's the evidence, um, and have uh, there have been studies showing that ECMO, as a proof of concept, can be useful for any subpopulations of prolonged cardiac arrest, because I think our, our listeners will want to know uh, that there's evidence supporting this um, really wild and, and powerful vision. John, what's the evidence? Thanks, Ben. So I think you guys are both pointing out some very important things. Number one is that ECMO is not a cure. Um, it does not fix a patient's coronaries if they have a coronary occlusion, it does not fix their PA uh, pulmonary artery if they have a big clot in it, but it does provide us time. And so, as Ben, you were talking about before, is this right for everybody? And well, the answer is no. There are some things that we have learned through cardiac arrest research to suggest when the timing of ECMO initiation might actually be best. So I think if we go through the, the medical literature describing ECMO, particularly for cardiac arrest, there's a lot of observational data that's out there. Um, but it might just make sense to go through probably one of the more powerful articles that are out there that came out recently and published in um, the Journal of the American Heart Association. And this is by a group that's, to be honest, leading the way in the use of ECMO for cardiac arrest. And this group's in Minnesota, at the University of Minnesota, led by Demetrius Yiannopoulos, as well as Jason Bartos. And these guys are doing some pretty amazing work. Um, but a lot of it has to do with the relationships they've built and how they've established a protocol for ECMO initiation for cardiac arrest. So this study is titled the Minnesota Resuscitation Consortium's Advanced Perfusion and Reperfusion Cardiac Life Support Strategy for Out-of-Hospital Refractory Ventricular Fibrillation. All right, say that 10 times fast. Impossible. So, but anyways, this is uh, their initial pilot data um, that they're going on to use and creating a larger data set uh, for their use of ECMO in cardiac arrest patients. So uh, this particular study is looking at 27 consecutive patients enrolled in their refractory VTVF protocol, and they compared them against some historical controls who presented to the hospital with uh, similar clinical scenarios. And we'll talk about the details in just a second. But it's probably get a, a good idea to go through what their protocol is for initiation so the audience kind of understands how they got to deciding whether or not this therapy is appropriate for a given patient. So the one thing I have to give the credits, even or the authors, probably the most credit for, is that they developed a strong relationship between their internal uh, interventional cardiology service and fire EMS system. So I think a lot of us out there, we probably have um, 
pretty good relationship for STEMIs, for example. So STEMI activations from the field, that's quite common. Well, what Dimitri did was he actually developed almost like an ECMO activation criteria with their EMS system. And why is this important? Well, if you think back to what we just talked about with the phases of cardiac arrest, that time from the patient collapse to intervention being ECMO is able to be shrunk down considerably as soon as uh, EMS is the one kind of activating and pulling the trigger based on some defined and predefined inclusion criteria. And so what they did was they developed it. They said, let's give it a try over three months and see how it goes. So the goal of this protocol was for each cardiac arrest, determine what they called early EMS transport criteria. And what that was, was essentially an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest of presumed cardiac etiology, and they defined that as an initial presenting rhythm of VT or VF. They had to be relatively young, but not all that young, 18 to 75 years of age, and they defined refractory cardiac arrest like this. And this is really interesting. If the patient received three EMS-delivered cardioversion shocks, 300 milligrams of amio, and that was given via IO or an IV, without achieving ROSC, they activated their ECMO criteria for a patient to be transported emergently to the hospital. Now, this may seem like three shocks. That's like nothing. And that's the point, is that the time is really important here. And if you count out how many minutes this went past, this is designed to start transporting the patient during the circulatory phase of their arrest. So what happened next? Well, when they got to the cath lab, they immediately decided to put the patient on ECMO. And they did this um, via percutaneous cannula placement. They put a 15 to 19 French arterial um, return cannula that provided blood flow back to the patient, usually around three to four liters, and a 25 French uh, venous drainage cannula, both through the femoral veins. Uh, as soon as that was established, coronary angiography was performed once hemodynamically stable or on ECMO, and then the patient was cooled to 34 degrees for about 24 hours. And this is accomplished pretty easily through the ECMO circuit itself. A head CT was performed uh, to rule out any sort of intracranial hemorrhage prior to arrival or prior to continuation of care. And the patient received multidisciplinary care as early as possible. I'm struck by all the work that went into this. And I think our, our listeners will want to know, is it worth it all? Uh, so if I can push us a little bit towards their results and say, you know, all that effort, all that team coordination, unless the results are astounding, maybe we're just not going to put in that effort at our shop. So John, was it worth it for these guys? Well, early results were actually were really promising. And if we talk about the patients that actually were um, put into the protocol, um, if we look at the arrest location, so 61% of them, which were 11 patients, um, arrested in a public place, and 100% of them had initial VTVF rhythm. 66% um, or 12 of the 18 patients actually had bystander CPR. Six didn't. Um, but the 911 to first responder uh rate was actually less than six minutes, which means that on average, someone was to the patient uh, at the arrest in less than six minutes, which is unbelievable. It's remarkable. I don't know what they're doing in Minnesota, but their responder rates are phenomenal. So of the 27 patients that were transported by EMS, nine were excluded for a multitude of reasons. Four died, so that was 22% died in the cath lab, and 14 out of 18 uh, total patients uh, went on to be admitted. And 
50%, so 9 of 18 patients with refractory VTVF cardiac arrest left the hospital with a CPC score of 1 or 2. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I think that's pretty impressive. Wow. So wait, John, let me make sure I get this straight. So you're saying a 50% survival to hospital discharge, and this isn't all comers. These are people with refractory cardiac arrest and prolonged CPR, 50% survival. Is that really what you're telling me from this study? You got it. And so dear listeners, for context, you should know that survival to discharge in the United States on average for cardiac arrest is somewhere between 15 and 20%. And that's an optimistic number. In many communities, it's lower than that. For refractory cardiac arrest, it's almost certainly lower. So this may be three or fourfold higher than the national average. So that may be the impetus why this work is actually worth it. Now, John, how about survival to discharge with neurologic recovery? No, so that was the 50%. CPC score one or two, 50%. Wow. Okay. So good survival, not just any survival. And that, of course, is what we're going for. We want people to be walking and talking and enjoying life after cardiac arrest. Well, I think I'm kind of sold. So, John, tell us a little bit more about what the implications of the study are and how people should operationalize it in their systems. Yeah, so... What's really interesting is if you look at the patients that were selected, they were very selective in which patients they decided to use ECMO on. This wasn't for all comers of cardiac arrest, which we know, particularly, unfortunately, in the age of the opioid epidemic, we're seeing a lot of respiratory arrest come into the emergency department. These were presenting with VT or VF. And why they chose that particular population to start with is, ideally, there's an intervenable reason for that patient to collapse. Now, this came through in the details if you look in, um, in the results. And a large cohort had confirmed coronary disease. In fact, 14 out of 18 patients, a PCI was performed on, um, or a, sorry, an angiography found clinically significant coronary disease. 12 patients actually got a PCI. And 56 of these patients actually got uh, a bunch of stents. So the mean number was an average of four, uh, plus or minus two. So there was a clearly identifiable cause for this patient's arrest, which was able to be reversed while the other organs were being perfused with the ECMO circuit. You know, you raise a really interesting point, John. For those of you who have listened to other episodes of this podcast or just know the literature, the recent COAC trial, a very important study looking at angiography after cardiac arrest and a subject of an earlier podcast in this series, found a much, much lower rate of coronary disease. And I think the difference here is this is refractory VFib. So those of you clinicians out there, if you get someone back from VFib cardiac arrest, they may or may not have coronary disease. If you fail to get someone back and there's persistent VF, you have to ask yourself, what am I missing? And what you may be missing is you haven't fixed the underlying lesion. 100% LED or any coronary occlusion for that matter, it's often really hard to get them out of VFib without opening up that artery. So that, I think, is the key difference. In the COAC trial, these were patients who got their pulse back. In this study, it was refractory VFib. In that population, we're probably highly enriched for patients with occlusive disease. Felipe, does that sound right to you? That sounds totally reasonable to me. I actually have a question for John. So we saw the numbers, pretty impressive numbers. How about complications? You mentioned that they, um, they, in, they didn't actually have that many complications in the study, and that is perhaps not representative of what we're seeing in other uh, data sets and other um, small cohorts. 
Well, yeah, so this I was really impressed with. And so uh, Dr. Yiannopoulos and his clinicians must have the hands of God. Because, I mean, I, listen, I don't know how they did this because they had exactly zero vascular complications related to the ECMO cannulation. And not only that, they didn't have any intracranial bleeds, strokes, leg ischemia, or infectious complications related to the cannulas that were placed emergency, uh, emergently. Um, and I can tell you that this is not easy. Oftentimes in refractory cardiac arrest, there's a lot of chaos going on. So to be able to basically perform this procedure without any complications is astounding. You know, I think that we see here at Penn, we do a fair amount of eCPR and ECMO, and we do in fact have, um, I don't have the exact numbers offhand, but a reasonable number of patients who um, go on to develop a stroke or something like that, it's not common, but it does happen. And so I think, I think this goes to the credit of uh, Dimitri's group. And he pointed out why, is that there were only a few people actually doing the procedure in the cath lab. These were high volume clinicians who did this over and over and over again. And so in a, it, I think that points to the point of the system, right? So if you work within a system where there's a lot of different moving parts and then people just occasionally doing these procedures, it's probably not the best idea to have them be responsible for actually the technical portion. They can be involved in the decision-making, but at the end of the day, a select few people probably should be doing this early on until you can develop a practice and culture. And I think it's important to point out that the Minnesota group, while their work is astounding, they're not the only group doing this. And so for those of you listening out there thinking, well, we can't be like them, there's now a growth of ECMO use during CPR in many places that are showing promising results. For example, investigators in Taipei, um, in other locations in Asia, in Tokyo, um, indeed some other locations in the United States as well are starting to do this. And, and so I think we're seeing a growth and really the bottom line question I would have of John and Felipe is, is this going to become the standard of care? Would you predict that in 10 years, the guidelines will say if you have refractory cardiac arrest, you need to put them on ECMO. Is that going to be the standard or is that a pipe dream? Well, that's a, that's a loaded question, Ben. Uh, and, I, and we're obviously biased on this, right? We're all here strong believers in that this therapy and this intervention has a role for these patients. I think the question is who will benefit from this intervention and this uh, this bridge therapy in the future. And uh, our work and John's work and the work of many others around the country and around the world is directed to try to establish more clearly uh, both the indications, the timing, the best approach in terms of system. I often like to quote Bruce Lee on this uh, quote. He said, I fear not the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks once, but I fear the man who has practiced one kick 10,000 times. And I think that's what defines what Genopolis and his team are. They're basically a super team. They really are uh, kind of a, not a one-man show, but a few-men show. And that's really what I think explains this astonishing low number of complications and also their impressive numbers of survival. And so I think as we think of ways to expand and scale scale this uh, more broadly, nationally, internationally, I think an important question that we need to keep in mind and kind of revisit often is how we're going to approach this from the system standpoint. And I think one of the potential solutions out there for that is the establishing cardiac arrest centers and sort of the concept of specializing uh, care and centering care to concentrate therapies like ECMO that will require significant investment and that are overall very complex in terms of their requirements. 
Yes, Felipe, you raise a really good point about cardiac rest centers. And I think that will be the topic of our next podcast. There's some recent work done on that topic that is worth reporting. Uh, there has been some background discussion for quite some time about regionalizing care for and after cardiac rest. And in our next podcast, we'll explore that topic more fully. Uh, I think it needs full attention and uh, future work. So with that, I'd like to thank my guests, Dr. Greenwood and Dr. Tehran, uh, and thank you for listening. Join us again for the TTM Academy podcast series. If cardiac arrest and targeted temperature management are of great interest to you in your practice, you should also check out our online CME On Demand course, which is now available through the TTM Academy website, as well as stay tuned for future live courses. We recently held our TTM Academy live boot camp in Philadelphia. It was a great success. We all learned a lot and hopefully we'll improve our care for these patients and have more survivors after cardiac arrest. Thank you very much for your time and attention. <music>